Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We didn't record a show in August, and a lot has happened, Ronaldo. Uh, we're going to touch on as many of the pressing international and domestic economic news issues as possible in this hour. But let's start with the stock market in the U.S. and the potential rise in interest rates from the Fed. And then we'll move into how this relates to the economic situation in China and internationally. Boy, I'll tell you, Matt, you're right. So much is going on. I don't, this could be a three-hour show, and I still don't think we'd get it all in. It's, it's, there's so much to talk about, so glad we're doing this. Um, I guess the, the, the best place to start would be um, the market correction and what it is. And, and you know, my wife woke up like everybody did the other day, a week ago, two weeks ago, Monday, and said, uh, it'll be two weeks this Monday, and said, gee, the market's dropped 1,000 points. What should we do? And my immediate reaction was buy. Because the market drop of 1,000 points was clearly not something related to anything in reality that does, deals with the economy. It was, it was really dealing with something much more profoundly troubling, and that is program trading. I'll come back to that in a moment. So it was clear to me that the market, and it's clear to actually most thoughtful observers, the market was due for a correction. A correction technically is when the market starts to get ahead of itself, meaning its ratio of price to earnings and other statistics start to, uh, start to get out of, out, of, out of alignment. The market will do what's called a correction, and then typically a correction is 10% or a little bit more. And that's about where this has all ended up. So although the market dropped by much more than that, and it was fluctuating wildly from day to day, <clears throat> at the end of the... You know, when the smoke all cleared, here we sit, you know, almost two weeks later, and there's been a market correction of about 10.2, 10 10.4%. It's continuing today, I notice. So what's real and what's not real? I, I, I want to start, before I go to program trading, I want to start with how does Wall Street make money? Because Wall Street's interests are so different than how Main Street makes money. The way Wall Street makes money is it suckers the average people person into believing either in panic, fear, or in greed. Get on board before it's too late. So what Wall Street does is it has to bounce you back and forth between panic and greed in order to achieve its objective to get you to buy and sell stocks. Because when you buy and sell, when anybody buys and sells, the market makes money. And, and the market doesn't make money if it sits still. In other words, if nothing trades, the market doesn't make money. So that's the motivation of Wall Street. Main Street is completely different. Main Street works when somebody bakes a loaf of bread or buys a pair of shoes or hires an accountant. So something real happens in Main Street. And what's going on in Main Street is really excellent. I mean, if you look at, uh, I was just looking before the show today. We've been consistently projecting, as you know, for many, many months now, we were considered to be on the high side of what was expectation for gross domestic product this year. We were projecting between 3.2 and 3.5%. If we continue to grow at the pace we're at right now, we'll actually achieve 3.7%. Now, when I did that 32 to 3.5% projection last November, as I always do, people thought that was a very, very high number. It's now looking like I might have come in low. Why? What changed? Well, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy have been strong. I assume we'll get to labor issues later in this program. But what hasn't gone well in the last two weeks on the market is that the 
computers that really actually run a thing called program trading have gotten out of control. They've literally gotten out of control. So what is program trading? Because that's what you're – this volatility where you get these huge swings up and down, like you feel like you're on a roller coaster ride, is that about anything real? Well, it's not real on Main Street because the economy is growing at 3.7% annualized. Jobs are at an all-time low, 5.1% unemployment, virtually strict structural unemployment. In fact, I saw a statistic this morning, Matt, that 430,000 new jobs were posted looking for employees this month alone. The highest number since 2009, wow. I believe. Yeah, That's and, very and high. so yeah, and, and 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 when we get we talk about later on if we're are we gonna, are we going to cover the idea of um, the Fed moving on rates. Yeah, so I want to talk about the Fed after we talk about program tra- trading, I think, and I think that yeah. uh, we'll talk about because you'll see you'll see where that comes then. in. Yeah, because yeah. that's where this whole thing on unemployment is going to come in, because the various factors the Fed's looking at are intriguing. Well, on program trading, as I started to say, in the real economy, things are going well, not anywhere near as well as they could have gone had we done more stimulus, as we've argued on this show for the last what four years, but. But it's going very solid step by step by step as the private sector continues to crank up more jobs, more goods and services. The political sector continues to be broken, and let's all watch to see what happens in the next 30 days if the Congress shuts down the government again, God forbid. Well, if it doesn't do something that stupid, shooting itself in the foot politically, the country will continue to progress all the way through the balance of this year. Christmas is going to be a great season for retailers, and 2016 looks like it's going to be a positive year as well. So why is the market swinging so wildly? And you hear explanations like China, and you hear explanations like the commodities are down, and the price of oil being down is causing this, which is not true because the price of oil actually only affects a few stocks on the Dow. It has a beneficial effect on Main Street. It only has a negative effect to those people who own oil stocks. And, you know, we told people to sell their oil stocks last March. Hopefully, people have done it. If they haven't, it's not too late to sell all your oil stocks because they're not coming back, folks. And if they do, it'll be a fraction of their former self, and then they'll plummet again. So what is program so, so, trading? Yeah, why, why are the wild swings happening then if it's not those okay, factors? Because program trading is designing a computer to rapidly buy and sell stocks. When I say rapidly, like a 1,000 buy and sell transactions in a second. So in a millisecond, a stock is bought and sold, sometimes faster. And when you do that with a computer, which is measuring minute increases and decrease, less than a penny in the market, by doing that millions and millions and millions of times, you can generate a lot of money. However, no human is exercising intelligence over that. And what happens is when the computer sees a particular sell-off pattern, it starts driving the other computers to sell. It sells. They sell more. It sells. It sells. No human beings involved. I actually had a very thoughtful conversation with some powerful Wall Street people just two weeks ago. This is all happening. And I said, look, you know, until a human being intervenes, this thing's going to keep flailing like this. Why do we have program trading? And, and, to give you, and this is one place where real investors and real people on Main Street all agree. Program trading is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. It's computers out of control. So why do we have it? Because a very few companies, large investment banks typically, have these massive computers which are trained to make a tenth of a penny, a quarter of a penny, a half a penny, but a thousand times a second. And by doing that, they're bilking the market. They're treating it like a rigged um, day in Las Vegas. A real investor, like a Berkshire Hathaway, like a Warren Buffett, is interested in putting his money in the market 
and watching to see how it grows if he correctly analyzed management, product, and opportunity. Yep, if you correctly manage that, the fundamentals, they call it in investing, the fundamentals produce a rising shareholder value. That's what Warren Buffett does. That's what guys like me do. We're looking for fundamentals. Program trading is the exact opposite. There's nothing fundamental about it at all. It's just how fast can a computer trade and what's it hearing other computers doing and how is it going to react to that. And the and way an, that another term for program trading is algorithmic trading, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's, so it's, it's all the same it's, thing. It's, yeah, it's accelerated algorithmic trading. In other words, the more complicated the algorithm and the more you accelerate it, the faster the program trading occurs and the less attached to the real world it is. So a real investor like Warren Buffett and anybody else that's a real investor, CalPERS, the largest, you know, institutional fund that takes care of all the retirement money for the California state employees. They don't want program trading. And by the way, neither do CEOs. The heads of companies hate the fact that their stock can be flailed around by 8, 10, 12% for no good reason. Nothing wrong with the business. It's just the computers went crazy that day. And until somebody reaches in and stops the computer, the descent doesn't stop. Now, there are things in the market called circuit breakers, which, are, which do kick in after a certain amount of programming trading, program trading goes crazy. But a lot of damage gets done before those circuit breakers kick in. Clearly, they didn't kick in anywhere near fast enough on the 1,000-point drop that we had the other day. But I would argue they're not even kicking in fast enough on a 350-point drop. If you know program trading is driving the market down five minutes after it starts, why on earth would you let it continue? In fact, I want to make a proposal. I believe that the candidates for president of the United States on both sides of the aisle, for both Republicans and Democrats, literally adopt a one-penny transfer <laughs> tax, a one-penny transfer tax on all common stocks, bonds, and preferred stocks. Because what it would do is it would eliminate those three instruments, which are the bedrock of our Main Street economy. It would eliminate them from program trading. Because if you charge a computer a penny every time it does a program trade, it can't make a penny on program trading. To make a penny on trading a stock, you have to have human intelligence. So why would we permit a computer to make a tenth of a penny, tens of tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of times a day, when it can't make a penny legitimately investing in stock? This is not like Watson, that big, big blues Watson, like IBM's supercomputer, figuring out what stock's going to go up $5 or down $5. This is a computer with algorithmic trading, simply betting on what other computers are going to do in the face of its move. So what I'm urging is that all of the presidential candidates say we, can, we know exactly how many stocks are traded, how many bonds are traded, and how many uh, preferred shares are traded. And the, the, the real economy depends on those instruments for liquidity and for, a, uh, for an even playing field market. We're going to charge one penny on every share of stock, every bond, and every uh, preferred stock that trades on the market, one penny every time it trades, will not affect any serious investor because one penny won't be the decision whether they buy or sell. But what it will do is it will eliminate that stock, bond, and preferred stock from ever being touched by program trading. Well, for those who followed the election, Bernie Sanders said, and he's right if you take the existing numbers, if you were to put a penny tax on all program trading, you could probably raise $700 billion. Hillary Clinton said you could probably raise $350 billion. And the reason for the difference is simply this. If you assume, and I think Bernie didn't, that program trading ending on some portion of stocks and bonds will eliminate that trading, then the volume of trades drops dramatically, and so you won't see $700 billion. Will you see tens of billions a year in tax accumulating? Absolutely. 
what could you do with that money? Well, you could repair our bridges. You could repair our roads. And by the way, we charge when you drive on the roads a highway tax. Why not charge a transfer tax if you use our market system to buy and sell stocks? It's the exact same theory. Republicans historically have embraced it. And because real investors like Warren Buffett, Republicans and Democrats alike, don't like program trading, and because CEOs don't like program trading, I think the Republicans and Democrats could come together on this. They might bicker over where to spend the money. I'd like to see the money go into a free community college for everybody or dramatically reducing the cost of university education or trade school education. But wherever you decide to spend all this money, you're going to pick up a whole lot of money. Now, one last point and I'm done. If you put a tax of one penny on every stock, every bond, and every preferred stock, that does not mean you are taxing all financial instruments. A whole bunch of instruments would still be traded with program trading, which are derivatives, and other what are called non-direct instruments. Now, I am not proposing a tax on derivatives at this time for two reasons. One, it's too easy to reconfigure the derivative to avoid the tax. And two, derivatives are a bad thing all by themselves, which I want to dramatically reduce in other ways for good legislative reasons, and we've talked about it on the show before. So I am very anti-derivative, uh, particularly exchange tra rate trading stocks and, um, and uh, swaps, rather. But, but I don't want to try and tackle that problem with this tax. With this tax, what I want to do is restore stability to the financial markets in everything that Main Street cares about. I'll deal with Wall Street separately. But Wall Street, except for a few big, big companies, will actually like the reduced volatility as well because then you'll be able to make and lose money on an even playing field. You won't be betting against some computer that trades 10,000 times a second or 1,000 times a second. So I don't mean – I don't want to be derivative in my comments here, and although uh, – no pun intended. But well, that, I, that I want to know – yeah, if you uh, if you were to be advising uh, any of the presidential candidates to actually put together a proposal here, who would you see as your allies uh, to try to drive a wedge between Wall Street and Main Street companies? Well, actually, I don't think we have to drive a wedge. In other words, I think the only place that we have to drive the wedge is less than a dozen companies that are the beneficiaries of program trading. Right. So you but know, they're huge companies. They're huge companies. They're, I mean, you know, look, Elizabeth Warren would be would be delighted to tackle them because Jamie Dimon runs one of the biggest ones, Chase Morgan, Morgan Chase. So, um, I, I think that uh, overwhelmingly, if you took a vote of the CEOs of the Fortune 1,000 largest companies in America, overwhelmingly, they'd like to get rid of of program trading. I, I can't imagine any serious executive of a Fortune 1,000 company that would see any benefit to their stock. So they'd like to have more control over the way the market trades their stock. So I don't see any pushback at all in corporate executives who, as you know, are extremely highly paid and have a great deal of influence over the political process. I don't see anything that would actually bother the vast majority of entities that literally assist the public in buying and trading stocks. That would be Charles Schwab. That would be uh, a number of the smaller companies that really don't have program trading capability. And last but not least, I don't see any resistance to eliminating program trading from the pension funds and the insurance companies, which are vast holders of third-party debt and third-party equity. So I don't see many people who have a vested interest in program trading except people who control extremely sophisticated computers that are bilking, and I mean that sincerely, bilking the rest of us, and subjecting us to marketplace fluctuations that are dizzying in impact 
and are destabilizing on every level. It's time to get this garbage out of the markets. And if we don't police the markets for ourselves, the markets will respond in ways we do not like. They literally could break under this strain. Very interesting. So that sounds like a real policy where people could be shooting with a rifle to uh, to separate Wall Street from Main Street and actually do good for the entire economy. Thanks for uh, yeah, and I, thanks for introducing us to that. And you know what I did? I, I wrote this up as a white paper, a short white paper, a very short one, a policy paper, um, which we'll be issuing here from the Academy probably in the next five to seven days at the latest. And uh, you'll it'll be coming out of, out of your office, uh, Matt. So if people want to get more they want to see how we tie this policy together, by all means, uh, send us a note and request that short document. It, it won't be more than three or four pages tops. And people can email us directly at info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org. So, Ronaldo, let's move on to talk about the uh, Fed policy and what's coming from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, so um, interesting. So the Federal Reserve has, tr- has been telegraphing for more than a year that it wants to raise interest rates above zero, uh, an admirable goal, sometime this year. They've got three open policy board meetings left this year, one of them coming up in about 10 days, where they're going to have to do it if if Janet uh, Yellen is going to be successful in raising them a quarter of a point, which is what she sort of telegraphed. Now, can you, can you talk that, about what, what that means? I mean, what is, the, what is the short-term interest rate, and how does it affect the economy? It has almost no effect. So what it really affects is the banks. Okay. So right now, the banks are borrowing for practically zero. They take that money from the Fed. They turn around and buy government bonds, which are 100% safe, for 2%, and they get to pocket the difference. Wouldn't you like to have that deal? Yeah, it's now, free that money. Put in, it's free money, and, and, and more than you can imagine, because they crank it out at enormous rates. That's what QE2 is all about. So they, if they were lending that money to us, to expand our businesses, that wouldn't be so bad. But they're not. They're using it to pay for their bad gambling habits, and they're paying for more lobbyists to get Congress to give them more ways to make money, and they're paying for more platoons of lawyers. But they're doing no good for the economy that I can ascertain. So Janet Yellen, who I think is a very good head of the Fed, is anxious, as would any rational person be, <clears throat> to get the interest rate from zero and slowly start getting it back to the point where the banks are paying a fair amount of interest, so that the only way they can make money is by borrowing the money from the Fed and actually lending it to people who pay more. So if you lend money to the World Business Academy, you're going to get paid 7.5% interest. Well, if you're getting the money as a bank for zero, why would you lend it to me, the Academy? Why wouldn't you just go buy Treasury bonds for 2.5%, have zero risk, and pocket the difference? But if you're paying eventually 2% for your money, sooner or later, it becomes worth your while. Say, so, you know what, I'll take the risk to lend it to the academy for 7.5% because I need more spread. Because the spread will close between the tre- what, the, what the Fed's charging and what you can get for a T-bill. Now, up until this market swing, and we're going to talk about China later, I know. Up until this market swing, the Fed was really leaning towards a September or at latest November, rate increase of a quarter point. What's happened is, as recently as today or yesterday, the World Bank came out and said, please don't raise the rates. It could further destabilize third world economies. I'll come up with that in a second. Um, prior to that, a week ago, the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, also pleaded with the Fed, please don't raise the interest rates yet. It could have a destabilizing effect. Everybody agrees it's got to go up at some point. 
The question is, is there so much panic in the air right now that raising them will cause a flight of capital away from developing countries to the U.S. for safety? That's the whole conversation. Will it have an effect in the real world, that quarter point raise? Absolutely not. Could it, could it feed a flight of capital from Brazil, from um, other developing economies? Yes, it could. But I don't think that would be a permanent change. What it means is that it's more worthwhile to bring your money to America because the value of the dollar will go up a little bit. Our exports will be less attractive, by the way. Imports will be more attractive to us. And the rest of the world will be able to piggyback on our 3.2, 3 3.5, 3.7% growth rate. That's what this is all about. Do they get a free ride or not? The truth is, if Germany... In fact, the whole European economy, but Germany particularly, would do its job and stop with the crazy austerity and start growing its economy. You know, for all the complaints I hear about China, oh, my God, China's slowing down, China's this, China's that. China's going to grow at 5% or more this year. Germany's going to grow at 1.2% at best. Who's got the real problem, Germany or China? Germany. And Germany is forcing other people because of its, I believe, Calvinistic, Methodist, Protestant, Puritan ethic kind of psychology, Germany continues on a course of austerity rather than growing its economy and is waiting for China and the U.S. to pull it out of the morass. Ain't going to happen. Not fast enough for Germany. So Germany now is going to have to deal with this issue. China's not the problem. Germany's the problem. China's not the problem. The U.K. is England's the problem. Same reason. Can you link that back to the, the Federal Reserve uh, decision, Ronaldo, because yeah. I'm 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 not quite following. Okay, so if the Federal Reserve does what everybody knows they have to do, which is begin raising the interest rates by a quarter of a point each time, mm-hmm. if they do that, the fear is there'll be a flight of capital from the developing world, and the reason they think that is because the global GDP is supposed to be at about you know 1.5 percent, two percent at most, two and a half on a good day. I don't think it'll be that high, but let's say it's two percent, two two point two. If the flight of capital, so everybody leaves Brazil with their money because they want to be safely in America, and they perceive that the strengthening American dollar would be a better place to put their money than a further decrease in the value of the real in Brazil, that will cause further lack of capital in Brazil, making it that much harder for Brazil to turn its recession around. I see. Okay. Okay. Now, in the real economy, Brazil has already dramatically reduced shipping iron ore and minerals to China. And what they're shipping now is food. And as, as luck would have it, they're going to want more Brazilian food in the future than they do today. So the real impact, as I say, on Main Street, there is no impact from the quarter point rise. The question is flight of capital. And if Germany was doing its job growing its economy faster because it wasn't in an austerity mode, if it was in a stimulative mode, then Germany's growth of its economy would in turn create more import opportunities for countries like Brazil. So Germany's saying, well, China, you and the U.S., you keep growing the economy. Oh, and by the way, we like the U.S. dollar stronger against our, our European euro so that we can export more to you and you'll import more. That's just laying the burden of economic growth for the entire world off on the U.S. and to a lesser extent China. And that's crazy. So having this thing on a quarter point turn is reducing everything to a small financial market related issue, which isn't real which does not have anything to do with, has very little to do with what's going on in Main Street. Will it change capital flight and flows? Yes. 
Will that rebalance? Absolutely. What will cause it to rebalance? The normal flow of good and trades in society on a global level. So by, by forcing the world to look at these minute financial manipulations as the drivers, it's distracting us from the real issue, which is Germany's got to get off the austerity kick. England's got to get off this austerity kick. France has to do some structural repairs of its economy. Italy's got some structural repairs to do. I mean, I could go on and on. But the idea that a quarter-point change of the, of the U.S. dollar, of the, of the Fed rate, is the thing that could you know, rise and fall and could destroy third-world economies, that's crazy. And, and I understand why the IMF is saying it, and statistically they're correct in one sense. I understand why the World Bank is saying it, but at the end of the day, and the, EM, uh, the European Community Bank, but at the end of the day, the world is not about banking. We've got to get over this, folks. The world is about people buying shoes and selling cars and hiring accountants. It's about Main Street. So if we're going to have a disequilibrium because the Fed does what it's been promising to do for a year with a quarter of a point of interest, by the way, which should have no material effect at all except psychologically, then bite the bullet, get it behind you. Now, I don't think they're going to. I think the Fed is probably going to duck it in September because there's too much pressure on it. And this is where the employment statistics in the U.S. figure prominently. Should we turn to that or am I getting ahead of myself? Yeah, so your prediction is that the Fed's not going to raise rates in September, but it will probably wait till their November meeting? I think so. I think so. I, I, I'm actually I'm perfectly willing to have them do it in September, candidly, but um, I think they might perceive that the political pressure is too much and they'll duck it for another 30 days. But the pressure they've got is this. In, in, in case, so here's what the IMF and the World Bank looks at. They're saying, look, you have almost no inflation in the U.S. You've had no wage inflation. You do have a tightening labor market, for sure, at 5.1%. You do have a lot of unfilled jobs, for sure. There will be wage increases coming in America, thank God. But they're not here yet. So why start moving the quarter of a point of interest now when inflation hasn't arrived yet, and you said the reason you would raise the rates is to reduce inflation? Janet Yellen has said very articulately as recently as two days ago, the reason to raise the rates now is to anticipate inflation because you can you do less damage and you can go more slowly and ratchet a normal rate into the economy. See, interest at zero is not normal. It's abnormal. It's ridiculously abnormal. So we've got to change that equation. Now, that's a number that banks love, clearly. Zero interest. They love to pay zero interest. But at the end of the day, it doesn't help the real economy or Main Street. So... What we need to do is we need to focus on how can we improve the real economy. That would be by stimulative spending in Germany, stimulative spending in, in, in the U.K., uh, financial and business reforms in France, n numerous reforms in Italy, etc. And by the way, in the, and in the process of doing all that, let's celebrate what India is doing well, because I think India is going to have a 7% or better year this year, and no one's really paying attention to that, and India is going to be a bigger economy than China in the not-too-distant future. So there's a lot going right. And, and, and by the way, the Chinese are not stupid. They, they don't know how to run a market economy, that's clear. They, they really don't know how. And, 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 but you know, anybody who was buying Chinese stocks before the market crash in Shanghai the other day was crazy anyway, because the whole, the whole thing was, 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 was clearly a giant bubble. It was like you know, buying tulips in Holland. Back in the 1800s, 1600s, whatever it was, the tulip crisis. You know, I think that the, the, the issue 
for China is how do they try and continue to expand into a consumer economy from an export-driven economy? How do they do that? How do they keep balance? How do they spend less on infrastructure and get more consumers to buy? Is a tough question in an economy yeah. that's basically rigged. Well, let, that, let's they, let's, they let's move to it. China. Let's move to China in a minute here, Ronaldo. I had one more, one other thing on the agenda uh, before we go into international, and it's kind of the segue, which is my question about the price of oil. Are you ready yeah. to go there yet? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, look, we told people in February, March, uh, do not own stocks in oil anymore, no matter whether you're an environmentalist or not, oil stocks are going sideways or down from here on out. And we've seen that the market has reflected that. So the the price of oil today is down around, oh gosh, I'm going to guess, I haven't looked today, but I'm going to guess it's around $40 plus or minus $2 or $2. And it's it's 45, W2, 45. Uh, West, West Texas is 45 and Brent is uh, just about 49 Okay, so Brent is for people who don't listen regularly. Brent is um, North Sea Oil. It's a European marker. The difference between Brent and the U.S. West Texas Intermediate is the cost of shipping between you know halfway around the world. Basically, that's the spread should be. So what you're talking about at forty-five dollars a barrel is what's setting the market price for oil. That forty-five dollars is probably can't get any larger than sixty-five under almost any circumstance and likely isn't going up for the foreseeable future. Why? Because there's a glut of oil, and because of that glut and the low price, Russia has chosen to pump everything it can. Saudi Arabia is pumping like crazy. And the hope that Saudi Arabia has is that it will squeeze out other forms of production because they'll be uneconomic. So that is happening. So there are no new tar sands projects in Canada. And some of the existing ones are in jeopardy because at $45 a barrel, it's tough for most tar sand projects to make money. Interestingly enough, um, shale oil in the U.S. can still be pumped for $45, but you're seeing seeing a dramatic drop-off in exploration. And that's important because shale oil through fracking has a very short, useful life. An oil well that produces fracked oil has a fraction of the useful life of a normal oil well because when you shatter the rock and pump it out, there's less there and you've got to move on. So to have a low drilling rate, which is what we're getting to, means there'll be fewer and fewer barrels of oil two, three, four, five years from today. However, for the next 12 to 18 months, the volume of oil in the market will probably be the same or greater. And I will add, within that time frame of 12 to 18 months, Iran will come back on the market pumping which means it'll add further to global uh, issues. And you'll see the financial strains across the board. Now, I've been told by people who are very sophisticated, who advise the biggest oil companies in the world, that fracking can exist at 45 to $55 a barrel with the best operators. Below 45, fracking goes away. Up at $65 a barrel, you get tar sands again. So I don't, and and by the way, the American Petroleum Institute has estimated that it won't go above 65. It's not just me saying this. So I see that the band of price for oil is between 45 and 65 in the indefinite future, but for the next 12 to 18 months, it's closer to the 45 number. And as you see more and more economies in the world switch to more renewable energy, like China's doing, like Europe's doing, like the U.S. is doing, it will further reduce the demand for oil. And as it further reduces that demand for oil, 
And by the way, efficiencies of automobiles, another one. The deployment of electric cars, another one that reduces demand for oil. The soon deployment, uh, starting now, of hydrogen fuel cars further reduces the demand for oil. So as those things all reduce, I don't see anything that takes up the slack to drive the price of oil north, and we already are at an excess capacity condition. So people should look forward to the pump prices staying where they are or dropping over the next 12 months, most likely drop some. Uh, and you should enjoy the benefits. Let me just comment on this one thing. Every time you hear a commentator on TV or somewhere in the newspaper say, the dropping price of oil is adversely affecting the economy, that is a either stupid statement or a lie. I'm not sure which, but it's one of the two. The drop in the price of a barrel of oil is the best thing that could happen to the global economy because it releases unbelievable amounts of spending power from everybody else. So what it's doing is we're finally realigning the flow of wealth away from the major oil companies back into the pockets of everyday people where they spend it. So the dropping of the price of oil only has one adverse impact on the stock market, and that's because the Dow Jones industrial average is comprised of a number of large oil stocks as well. So it has a disproportionate effect on the Dow, which tends to be a marker. It does not have a disproportionate effect on Main Street. In fact, Main Street absolutely excels as the price of oil drops. So when you see somebody say the price of oil dropping is a bad thing, they're either too unwise to know what they're talking about, or they're lying for their own reasons. I don't care which. Don't listen to them. It's crazy talk. Dropping the price of oil is the best thing that can happen. Oh, and by the way, there's a worse thing coming for those guys, which we've talked about on the show before. I'm not going to do it today, but we should go bat Mac at some point and look at how many barrels of oil there are on the balance sheet of the largest oil companies. And what you will find is the asset value of those companies is way overstated. And that's going to bring their shares down as well because they're not going to pump all that oil. And if they do pump it all, it ain't going to be prices of $100 a barrel. It's going to be prices closer to forty-five, fifty. Excellent. Thank you. So a quick note for our listeners, the World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and our work relies on people like the listeners of the show to help support it. Uh, we have a $25 a month associate member donation level that I'd like to encourage you to sign up for. If you go to our website at worldbusiness.org and click on become a member on the right side of the page, it'll walk you through signing up for that membership. And one of the reasons we'd like you to do that, apart from the fact that it keeps the show on the air for your benefit, uh, we're going to start putting out some information between shows that we think you might find useful for planning your own retirement or planning your savings plan or planning your financial plans and also for just planning on how to adjust to the various swings of society. And that $25 a month is what helps us achieve that. So don't think it's a small thing. It's very big to us. So, Ronaldo, let's move on to the international economy, and we've talked a little bit about China, but let's start at the beginning and uh, talk about what this what this massive stock market uh, crash in China is all about. Yeah, the the the, the Chinese bubbles. There, there 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 are two bubbles in the Chinese economy. One is real estate, and one is the stock market. Let's take stock market first because I touched on it. The stock market to say that it is like riding into a town in the Wild West in the days of wider would be understating the amount of chaos and risk in the Chinese stock market. Why? Because China doesn't believe in transparency, and because China controls its company through state-owned organizations. So when you have a command and control economy, that's the technical definition of the Chinese communist economy, 
what happens is you never know if what you're investing in will be will find favor with the bureaucrats in Beijing tomorrow or won't. And so the value of that enterprise is more gambling on what you think the psychology of present and future Chinese leadership will do than it is on the ability of that company to make money or profits. So the stock market, which the Chinese economy, the Chinese government encouraged small people, to, which is unfortunate, to invest in. So they have a dramatically higher ratio of individual investors than the U.S. I think their ratio of individual is like 78% of the stock market in China was owned before the crash by individuals, which means they took 78% of the pain. Here in the U.S., it's, it's way, way below 50%. I'm going to say probably 40-some percent. Uh, so the idea that China would let this happen to its people, they, they didn't want to see a crash, but they didn't really know how to manage it so there wouldn't be one. They tried to shore it up as best as they could. They don't want people to get hurt, but they also don't know how to how to run an economy that isn't rigged, that doesn't depend on the Communist Party for determining who wins and who loses at every level of society, by the way, not just the top. So the Chinese stock market became inflated because the little people in China wanted to put their money somewhere. As China's been growing at you know seven to ten percent for many, many, many decades, two decades plus now. So where does all that money go? There's only so many places you can spend it. So they threw it into the stock market, which China thought at the time was a good idea, but they never did anything to try and see if the ratio of what people was putting in had bear or any relationship to the reality of what the economy was doing. So it. You know, got bigger and bigger like a bubble does and got, until it finally burst. I believe the Shanghai index is down over like 40-some percent, 45 percent. It's, it's a huge drop. And by the way, I don't see any reason for it to go back up. I think at 40-some percent, it's as good as numbers any because, frankly, it's still not transparent. I still don't know what stocks to buy or sell because I still don't know anything about China in the sense that I can't – I don't have generally accepted accounting principles so I can look at their books and know what it means. See, here in the United States, in Europe, and modern countries, industrial development countries, we have independent accounting. And we have very sophisticated standards so that somebody like me, or somebody who paid somebody like me, can find out what's really going on in a company's books, short of fraud. That's not the case in China. They're slowly trying to bring accounting into the world over there. But very slowly, because they, there's only so much they want transparent. So it's inherently a bad place to invest in stocks, and nobody should ever be in the, in the Chinese stock markets, period. It's just not a smart thing to do because it's totally a mess. And it ain't going to get better unless the Communist Party radically changes its view of the economy, which it's not going to do. So you get a bubble, you get a bust. People will probably forget another bubble could occur, but I see a boom and bust cycle, and that's not brought on by program trading at all. That's brought on by the fact there's no transparency in the market. Next one is the real estate market. Did I cover that okay? You want any questions? Yeah, I think that's good. Thank you. Okay. Okay, so the real estate bubble is China has had this massive momentum of people moving to the cities. And the city's getting larger. And the city's developing more office buildings because there were more people coming in uh, to do business. And, 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 and more companies requiring office space. And then there needed more hotels because there were more foreigners coming in that needed temporary places of lodging. And then they wanted more restaurants because they wanted to feed the people at the hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So as the economy expanded over the last two decades, China had a pro-real estate development policy, which basically made it almost impossible to lose on real estate. 
uh, state money was available everywhere, even at the local level where it's extremely corrupt. And so a building boom has ensued, which now has left you know, whole blocks of apartment buildings with nobody in it, office buildings that no one will op- occupy for the near future. Um, I think the hotel overbuilding isn't quite as bad, frankly. But there's so much real estate construction that occurred that it's going to take a long time for the market to soak up all that real estate. As a result, there's been a, a bubble in that real estate, which is now sort of popping. What China's trying to do, as it tried to do with the stock market, by the way, is it's trying to slowly let the air out of that bubble. And I think they're doing a good job. And by letting the renminbi, which is the name of the Chinese currency sometimes referred to as the yuan, by letting the renminbi drop, which they did, was an incredibly intelligent thing to do. That they are getting beat up for that is really unwise. We, are, we should be grateful that their currency dropped to a more appropriate level. We've been complaining for years about their currency. And the fact is, when they decided they wanted to take a 1.2% drop, it ran away from them because they didn't realize, because they don't, they're not, they don't understand capital markets, obviously, they're communists. So they didn't realize that once they opened that box, Pandora's box, as it were, that the rates would go even faster down because the global economy would start resetting the, the value of the renminbi once they knew it was not going to be shored up by the Chinese government. So the Chinese government is now slowly restabilizing it at a lower level. It will make Chinese exports more attractive, cheaper. It'll make imports more expensive, fine. It will tend to slow down their consumer economy growing from external forces, but it very well might help their consumer economy domestically. Uh, there may be more guys opening noodle stands and less people owning, opening Kentucky Fried Chicken stands. So there's, there's, a, there's a real um, value in what China is doing. I think given its weakness in capital markets theory, it's doing the best it knows how to moderate through these next series of changes. I'm predicting at least 5% growth in China this year. And when you compare that with everybody else, that's a pretty darn good number. I mean, you know, we'll do, say, 3.5% in America, Germany at 1.2% if they're lucky, France is going sideways or a little bit down, Italy's probably sideways or a little bit down. I mean, it could keep going on and on and on. The bottom line is not even the, Nor- the Scandinavian countries are going to grow at 5% this year. The only major economy that's going to grow faster than that is India, which I think will so, grow faster than 5%. Before we move on to India, do you think that this latest series of events in China – is China making the turn from their kind of command and control economy to a more consumer-led economy? And is this the, the, the maturity of the Chinese economy as opposed to a destabilization of their economy? Yes. I mean, I think it's, 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 a, it's, 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 it's the rocky road between one type of command and control economy and another one. I mean, don't, don't misunderstand. They're not going to abandon command and control even as they go to consumer economy. <clears throat> but what they're trying to do is moderate it. In other words, they're trying to get a touch of market capitalism in, but command and economic control will still dominate. In other words, Beijing will not give up the authority to tell everybody in the country what to make, how much to make, and what to charge for it. They're not going to give that authority up. What they want to do is get more feedback from the markets as to what those decisions should be. Follow me? Yeah. And that's part of their decision, which is correct, to have their economy based more on domestic spending like it is in the United States, and less on the need for exports. However, they can't go cold turkey. Right. Because where did all that money come from? The beauty of China is, look, it's still sitting on the biggest set of reserves in the world. 
And, and what they're doing is really smart for them. So we have, a, we have an economy here in the United States, which is three-quarters of it is, is driven by consumer spending and very little by exports. Well, in China, it's the reverse. Now, they'd like to have a better blend, and so would we, by the way. But the way they get there will be through command and control and by picking out what to shore up, what not to shore up. They don't want a complete route in the stock market, but they don't want to close the stock market down either because they want to see how capital markets might be able to work in tandem with the Chinese command and control economy. So they're letting a little bit of accounting in. They're letting in a little transparency. They're, they're encouraging people to spend a little bit more. They dropped that stupid only one child policy, as an example. It's part of a consumption increase. So I think China is doing its best. This elephant called China is trying to learn how to dance. But what mm-hmm. it doesn't want to do is to give up the control that is, that is the Communist Party control of the country. Because remember, extraordinarily small, less than 1% of the people are Communist Party members. So in order to continue to guide that elephant, the Chinese Communist Party will not give up control, period, end of statement. To them, the strength and future of the Communist Party, I believe, is more important than the strength and future of China as a nation. They put the Communist Party first because they think that's how to get China. The best way to keep China strong and growing is for the Communist Party to keep running things. So don't misunderstand. They're going to a consumer economy will not change their fundamental control issues. But what it will do is rebalance their economy so that it doesn't have to achieve enormous um, swings. They're trying to moderate those swings, and they're going to have to learn how to do that over a long and painful process. But think of this as a bumpy road from one plateau to a new plateau, not a radical shift. And they were they were attempting to shift away from their massive infrastructure-led economy as well, not just uh, towards a more consumer-led economy. Is that right? And it's, yeah, what, I, what I understand is that they... they have kind of backpedaled on that and launched a couple of major uh, uh, infrastructure projects. Yeah, to try I mean, and shore so, did, so did Japan. Japan has been overspending on infrastructure for two decades, and its economy has been showing the signs of depletion as a result. The Chinese, the Japanese economy has gone sideways or down for 20 years. You can't say that about China. And one of the things they did to keep it going was all this infrastructure spending, you know, bridges to nowhere, literally, or, you know, adding lanes to, to highways that don't need them. And they backed off that. Um, and, and, and we should probably do a show on, chi- on Japan because I don't like the false information that the major news media are putting out about Japan. They're giving Abe, the prime minister, way too much room to continue screwing up. And I think I know why, and I'd like to do a much more critical analysis of why Japan continues to fail. And it is failing. It's failing badly. And Abe economics has not worked, and I don't believe ever will work. And so what he's done is he's gone back to infrastructure spending, which is the old way they did it. Uh, And, 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 and for example, he got credit uh, yesterday from the Financial Times because he started talking about the control of agrarian interests in Japan. Oh, my God. He didn't change anything. He just talked about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Abenomics is, is actually, I think, a far worse mess and far more problematic to the future of the global economy for the next 10 years, far, far worse than China, if you're just talking about economics. So I want to I want to go now to you wanted to do an update on the BRICS and I also added something here Ronaldo which is an update on the Grexit. Yeah. So um we're waiting to see what the next election produces in Greece. Uh as those who listen to the show know, I think it would have been in Greece's interest to exit the euro, not the European Community Market, not the common market. That, that I want to keep them in. Just the European Monetary Union. I think Greece should have left that. They should have started printing drachmas. 
I hope for their sake they will at some point, but they have another election now to go through because Syriza, which is the governing party, and by the way, the Greeks have gone to the polls twice already this year. This will be the third time coming up. And the prime minister, Tsipras, basically said he didn't have enough um, support within his own power, party to pull off the compliance he's been dictated by the European Union. And uh, so he's asking for a vote. Uh, I hope the Greeks reject it. I hope the Greeks choose to leave the European Monetary Union. But they haven't done so yet, and their leadership has said they're not going to. So now they're going to the polls to decide whether the leadership will listen to um, the traditional leadership or whether they will go to um, new leadership. And uh, we're all just going to have to stand by and watch. And, but since I think Greek exiting is a good thing, not a bad thing, unlike most other people, um, I'm not troubled by the fact that Greeks leave because I'd like to see them Greece go in another direction. I don't see how they come out of this mess. I mean, everybody has admitted the International Monetary Fund vocally, um, the IMF, which is, you know, I think the most neutral observer of this, uh, certainly the World Bank. Everybody who's thoughtful has looked and said, this is crazy. There is no way that Greece is going to pay all this debt back. It's not even possible. So what are we waiting for? Why don't we just give them, you know, do, whatever you, do what you do when a, a company or a country goes bankrupt. You cut down the debt, you give them something that they can survive with, and you help them rebuild. Greece has been in crisis economically since 2007, and not a recession. They're in a depression. They're in a depression. Do they have things they could do to make their economy work better? You bet. But I don't care what they do. There's nothing they can do under the terms of this agreement with the European Union to, to, to come out of that depression in the foreseeable future. By that, I mean yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned India earlier, Ronaldo. So do you want to talk about India quickly? Sure. It's one of the BRICs, right? I mean, yeah. China... India, Brazil, and Russia. So <clears throat> India is doing well under Modi. He's been so, quite frustrated by a lot of his initiatives have not gotten through even with his landslide in parliament. Uh, but even with that, India is growing, as I say, at 7% or so this year. Uh, they continue to develop the largest middle class in the world. They have more people in their middle class now than we have people in the country in the United States. Uh, it's becoming more and more of a consumer economy. Uh, their transportation sector has continued to evolve into, uh, as they deregulated their airlines, they now have great, tremendous variety and choices of air carriers around India. Um, the technological boom in India continues unabated. Uh, I think that um, India has a, a lot of deep divisions that are religious, that are sociological, uh, I think that there's clearly tremendous corruption in India. Uh, you, people have no idea how corrupt India is. Even having said that, in the face of all that, Modi has been making consistent forward movie, movements in that economy. If he's left to run the country long enough, he will, I think, one foot after the other, continue to build India and make it stronger. Um, I was sorry to see the, the Jain kind of revolt in the Gujarat province, I was glad that Modi personally intervened because he used to run Gujarat for 10 years. Uh, that, that little revolt that the Jains pulled was a, was a, was a blatant grab for power because uh, they're, they're much more well-off financially than most people in India. And their de demand that a certain number of Jains be hired for every level of bureaucracy in Gujarat, was I thought was high-handed and inappropriate and not good for either the country or the state. And frankly, I don't think good for the Jains. 
but um, the Jains have had it so good for so long in, in, in India that they're finding democracy un- uncomfortable, and so they're trying to grab a little bit more on their way out the door, so to speak. I, I'm, I think that um, Modi's handling it well. Uh, it's a very complex situation, but I think um, I feel very good about China in the future. Uh, Brazil. Um, Brazil's problems are political. Uh, the corruption there reaches right away, all the way to Dilma Rousseff's office, the president. Um, the drought in Brazil is hurting their agriculture, which is incredibly important because they need that agricultural sector now to start pumping up because the global demand for food is growing and will continue to grow and could be the thing that would save Brazil in the end. Um, Brazil's domestic economic sector has lost confidence in the government. Um, I think the government has kind of frozen itself into a corner. Uh, clearly, uh, the scandal at Petrobras, the large government oil company, is an enormous setback. Uh, clearly, it reaches throughout Rousseff's government. Clearly, she was chairman of the board when it all happened, so she should have known better. And if she didn't, and probably didn't, it's because she wasn't paying attention. But um, that corruption, which is endemic in Brazil and has been kind of overlooked as part of the more recent 10-year growth record, uh, without a leader like Lula, which is how Rousseff got there because Lula kind of appointed her, without a leader like Lula to keep all those forces under control, Brazil has devolved back into what it was before Lula. Not as bad, because he created a huge increase in the middle class. But all the same strains are showing up, and Brazil really needs a strong effective democratic leader and it does not have that in Dilma Rousseff and you know I can't wait till her term is over and they get decent leadership in there last one of course is Russia um, with the drop in the price of oil uh, Russia is in terrible trouble the ruble is down it will go down further uh, the economy in Russia I'm gonna guess has dropped at least five to nine percent in the last 12 months that's enormous I mean, there's no country in the world other than Greece that's seen that kind of loss in such a short period of time uh, that I can think of anyway. Um, so Russia is going through this, this downward spiral that's tightening. The sanctions on it from their adventures in Crimea and Ukraine are further tightening that spiral. Putin has now chosen to cut back his military spending domestically by about 70% from what he announced, because he just hasn't got the money. And yet he continues with his adventurism in Syria, where he's now going to put a bigger Russian footprint, and he's going to, think, build a, a, a kind of a, a castle wall around about 20 25% of the country so that his puppet there, Assad, can stay in power in that 25%, basically sustained by literally Russian troops on the ground, Russian tanks, Russian Air Force. So um, Putin is grabbing militarily, if you will, an ally in the reduced Syria, because it's only going to be 20, 25% of the country at most. And he'll keep Assad indefinitely propped, is what it looks like from what the intelligence photographs are showing. That he can afford because it's a small enough commitment. But he can't afford rampant military uh, expeditions. He can't afford a massive military buildups like he uh, claimed he was going to do. And he's going to have to watch himself carefully because the Russian people are starting to feel the pain. And the Russian people are very famous for putting up with a tremendous amount of pain to a point. When they go through a couple of winters in a row where there isn't enough bread, they would 
he won't be able to keep it together, I don't believe. And so I see lots of trouble coming for Russia. They're not going to run out of bread this winter. Uh, they're going to be strained terribly. Uh, tens of thousands of people have protested to Putin, which is very dangerous in that country because you can get killed for protesting, uh, over the destruction of agricultural products that came in from the West. But at the end of the day, he thinks of himself as a czar. Czars don't care about peasants. They don't care about serfs. They don't care about the little guy. All they care about is how they're going to keep everything under their control and own it all. And I think Putin identifies himself so closely with the state, he thinks he owns everything and everybody in Russia. And in one sense, he does. That's what a, that's what a czar is. Um, the problem he's going to have is he doesn't understand economics well enough to realize that the underpinnings of his collapse are already being sown by his own bad policies. And as fearful as people are of, of, of opposing him, and as high as his popularity ratings are up until recently, and they're starting to drop, by the way, um, he can't keep it up indefinitely when he's making such bad economic decisions. So Russia's in a tightening spiral, and I don't see it getting better. I see it getting worse in 2016. And a footnote, just to give you some idea how bad this oil thing is hurting, Saudi Arabia, for the first time in its history, has now gone to the capital markets twice for debt. Because even Saudi Arabia, pumping wow. like crazy, cannot support its socialist state on $45 a barrel oil. They That's can't do it. Yeah. yeah. So they can get it out of the ground for $45, or actually a lot less, but they haven't got enough surplus to be able to pay for the 500-some princes that are driving around in Mercedes-Benz. And for Saudi, that's very important, because that is a welfare state. And they cannot afford to let that welfare state go dry, because if they do, they will have a revolt from within, from their own fundamentalist sect, the Wahhabi sect. And worst of all, and this is what I want everybody to be watching – the number one enemy of ISIS is not the United States. It's Saudi Arabia. By definition, if you're al-Baghdadi, who claims himself to be the caliph of the, of the, of the, of the, of the new state, this new Muslim state, he cannot rule legitimately if he does not control Mecca. And that's why he's always said, deal first. he's going to deal first with Syria, which he's done. He's going to deal with Iraq, which he's doing and done. Uh, he's not even going to mess with Afghanistan yet. He's going to go straight to how can he hurt Saudi Arabia and bring it down. Because if he can, if he can cause dissent and collapse within from Saudi Arabia, he could attack and he could control Mecca, and that's where he will go. So, Ronaldo, I want you to add all this up and tell me where you are on the doomsday clock. In July, during our last show, we were at nine minutes to midnight at 11:51 p.m. What's your outlook right now? I'd say at least 10 or 11 minutes from midnight. So we've we've moved two minutes in a positive direction, you think? Yeah, absolutely. Because the the the, the, the stupidity of the U.S. government from the last two years has been overcome by strong market forces. I think that the Iran deal is an enormous step forward. Anybody who opposes that basically doesn't want Israel to survive. I, I, I Israel will not make it if we don't have that Iran deal. I don't. I I think that Yahoo's milking that for all he can politically. But if you look at the people at J Street, for example, who have articulated correctly that the Iran deal is the best way for Israel to continue to survive, that is true. So I am very pro-Israeli, and therefore I'm grateful for the Iranian deal. By the way, I think Mossad is in favor of, the Israeli, is in favor of that Iranian deal. I think the entire Israeli intelligence community, their military establishment, is in favor of that deal because Iran is two months from breakout. And this is going to push them to a year or more from breakout and has all kinds of built-in restraints. 
So when you see somebody like General Colin Powell, Republican, coming out two days ago for this treaty, it's not just that the Democrats are for it. It's that there's no plausible argument against it. And let me tell you why. When you get China, Russia, France, U.S., and the U.K. to all agree on this document, that's massive. If we weren't to approve the Iran deal, sanctions would be gone in an instant. We'd lose all of our leverage. And by the way, the same Republicans, and I'm only picking on them because they did this dumb thing, the same Republicans who were against sanctions in the first place and said it would never work and poo-pooed Obama putting them on, are now saying we should have more sanctions. Right. Okay. It's all political theater. The reality is everybody smart knows we want to keep Iran from having a nuclear weapon. Are they nice people? No. But neither are the Russians, frankly, at this point. We want to reduce the likelihood of Iran having a nuclear weapon in the Middle East. I, I want to contain the potential damage in the Middle East to what ISIS can do. I do not want to accelerate it with nuclear weaponry. And uh, all the rest of it just troubles me that people would play political football with this to the nth degree. And I am very upset with the Democrats, who for their own political domestic reasons, I'm taking on Chuck Schumer particularly, who would take uh, aim at this and, and, and oppose that tree. And I believe that Chuck Schumer has forfeited his right to be the Democratic leader if, in fact, the, the, the Democrats recover the majority in the Senate, and he has forfeited his right to be the minority leader if the Republicans continue to be it. He should not be Harry Reid's successor. He cannot be trusted. In fact, I've been, I've been troubled by Schumer's position on Wall Street for years. He's the handmaid in Wall Street, as you know. But when he did this thing on Iran, that told me this man cannot be trusted. I do not want him to be the majority or the minority leader in the Senate. And they need to go back to the drawing board and figure out who they do want. Yeah. This guy is not the guy. Well, Ronaldo, I want to commend you on what we said was good, could be a multiple-hour show, squeezing so much in. Uh, is there anything you want to close with before we sign off? Yeah, I want to, sh- I want to end with, with John Kerry, Secretary of State Kerry, who finally is the first not- large official who's saying what we've been saying on this program for years. If you think the migration crisis in Europe is a tragedy beyond belief, and I do, because that, that's about war refugees, and how soon Europe forgot how we treated war refugees after World War II. They have got to change their approach to the war refugees immediately, and I'm glad that Germany finally is opening its doors, and I think other countries will too. However, what Kerry said, and he's right, last week, if you think this crisis of migration is bad, you have no idea how bad it's going to be from climate change. And then he went on to say, he observed, you will have tribes fighting at the tribal level for food, water, and survival. That's going to destabilize far more people that everything that's happening in the Middle East. And he's right. And I commend Kerry for his sincerity, his honesty, and his willingness to say that in public. We've been saying it at the Academy for a number of years. I'm grateful that John Kerry has echoed that sentiment. And I would urge people, please, tell your friends about this show. Get other people to listen. Send us your questions or your comments. We want to have a conversation with you. And we want this show to get to more and more people so that conversation can spread. And with that, I'd also ask you to please look at emails you get from Matt. There's a great number of really interesting subjects coming up, including a new service we're going to launch called The Daily Optimist that you'll be hearing about. Because I do want to be optimistic, if at all possible. That's it for me, Matt. Ronaldo, I want to commend you for not mentioning the name Donald Trump during this whole episode. Thank you for that. You're certainly welcome. I think a man gets altogether too much publicity for a clown. (laughs) On that, I I got a academy. 
Uh, I want to thank our audience for joining us, and please do come to our website at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. Uh, Tune in next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms, and until then, thank you for listening, and please do share this link. Thanks, Thanks, Ronaldo. Thanks, everyone.